This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, your host for the New Books Network, and I'm here with Rana Dietrich to discuss her book, Rewriting Eve, Rescuing Women's Stories from the Bible and Reclaiming Them as Our Own. Fueled and informed by an intense theological study and her own life experiences, Dietrich passionately deconstructs, reimagines, and expounds on ancient narratives about women in scripture. Dietrich holds a master's degree in divinity and a certificate in spiritual direction from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. She is a writer, speaker, coach, and provocateur of passionate conversation about how we tell the sacred stories of biblical women. Hello, Rana. Hi. How are you? I am good. A little bit of a cold, but can't complain. Can't complain because Rewriting Eve will be out in the world very soon. I know. know. A week from yesterday. How do you feel? I feel good. I'm I'm ready for the all that came before to be in the past mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be mm-hmm. able to just have it out there and uh, now be able to move into the future with it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the past, you uh, you did a TED Talk some years ago, Redeeming Eve, Reimagining Everything. And you mentioned the impact of biblical women's stories and the patriarchal systems of power that those narratives are usually rooted in. How did you come about the concept of rewriting Eve and the accounts of other biblical women? How did all that come to you? Mm, yeah, well, it's a long and lifelong story to be sure. Um, I think the, the path of getting to where I was when I made the Ted talk and then finally writing the book has been, um, twisty and windy and, um, a life's journey to be sure. Uh, but in brief, what I will say is I grew up in the church. I grew up Presbyterian primarily, uh, and I've known these stories probably from the womb, uh, I remember them being read to me as a child. I remember reading them in various versions, you know, the children's Bible and you know, the ones that were cleaned up and sanitized enough that children could read them <laughs> and begin to understand or at least make some assumptions about what was going on. Uh, but I, that was my life. I grew up in that world, going to church on Sundays, um, vacation Bible school in the summers. You know, I fast forward ahead. I went to a Christian college. Uh, If I fast forward even more, I did a stint as a missionary in Korea. I married a pastor. Um, I, and then I went to seminary when I turned 40. And so it was really in seminary that all of this began to, um, fall apart is probably the best way to describe it, which seems a little ironic that it would be in, you know, when you're, when you're actually studying theology and faith and all of these things that this is when it would all deconstruct. But I've heard this from many people that their seminary experience was the most significant turning point in their own life of faith and belief. And for me, that was certainly the case. I think there were two really significant things that happened while I was there. One was that I was, I took a class called Feminist Critique, and it was the only time, the first time that class had ever been offered and the last time it was never offered again. 
Um, and uh, though it's slightly embarrassing for me to say it, it was really my first exposure to feminism. Uh, and more importantly, I think, to patriarchy and misogyny and seeing just how rife that was within the world that I had grown up in. It's in everyone's world, obviously, but I just, you don't see it because you're in the water, right? It's it's like, you, you just don't know unless until you do. And once you've seen it, you can't not see it anymore. So... For me, that class was really pivotal in in beginning to recognize that all of these stories that I had heard all of my life had all been told, translated, interpreted, preached through the lens of men. And that's not to say that women have never interpreted scripture or women have never preached, but overarchingly, we can be relatively safe in saying that it's mostly been white men that have interpreted these texts over the years. And just that awareness began this process for me of questioning how these stories had been told. And not that they'd been told wrong necessarily. It had just only been through one lens. So that was one huge and important event for me in seminary. The second one was that I was taking both Greek and Hebrew, the original languages of the text. And Hebrew specifically is a very poetic language. It's wide open to interpretation. Um, Unlike what we've been told, you know, that things are kind of poured in concrete in scripture. Hebrew is not concrete in any way, shape, or form. And the class uh, was all men except for me and one other woman. And we were translating one book of the Bible, and every day we'd come to class with the next passage you know, that we had translated overnight. And what I began to see over the weeks was that the other woman and I consistently translated it differently than the men did. Now, it didn't change the story. It didn't change, you know, the verbs, the nouns, the, the the punctuation, all of that stayed the same. But the tone, the nuance, the the leaning of the stories took on a little bit different perspective. And I remember that the men would like argue. They would say, well, that's not how you translate that. That's not how that goes. And both of us would like show our paperwork and we go, look, we parse the verbs the same way. The subject-object relationship is just the same. And we have what it what it began to show me was that I had permission to see this a different way, that there were more ways legitimately, like not me just making it up, but like legitimately. So it was out of those two experiences that I it really it felt sort of like a <clears throat> house of cards. Like I flicked the one on the bottom and they all came crashing down. Um, But it really was the beginning of this process for me of then reimagining. And I started with one woman's story while I was still in school and rewrote her story intentionally through a woman's lens, through my lens. And I researched, I mean, it was like an academic paper. It wasn't like my book. It was, you know, it was what it needed to be for school. But I researched, 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 looking for feminist interpretations of this story, looking for women who were writing about her, this one particular text, in ways that weren't what I'd always read. And with very rare exception, I couldn't find anything. Now, that is not to say that there isn't really solid years, decades and decades of brilliant feminist theology out there. There is a lot of it. And I will also say that because it's as brilliant as it is, it's also hard to read. Like it isn't something you sit down at night and read in bed. It's it's brilliant scholastic work. But there weren't, I couldn't find uh, articles or books or anything really that was a lay person trying to tell these stories in a way that was on a woman's behalf. And so that's what I did initially was just wrote this academic paper trying to 
debunk all of the ways this woman's story had been told from a male lens and inviting a, an ima- a reimagined understanding of her. So that was, wow, 20 years ago. Um, and so since then, you know, so many things have happened. I ended my marriage to the pastor. I left the church uh, and I kept writing these stories or rewriting these stories in mostly for my own sake. Like I just deeply needed other women traveling alongside me, like in the throes of trying to figure out whether or not I could leave my marriage, being so deeply steeped in Christian theology, that was anathema. And so as example, the story of Hagar was a story that I needed I needed to hear her voice in order to even believe that I could leave and to not be alone as I felt like I walked through the desert. Um, I needed the story of Eve to feel like I could make my own choice, even though it was going to cost me everything. I needed the story of the midwives in order to know that I was companioned and I could stand up to power and make a choice that might, again, cost me everything, but that was the right one. I mean, I could go on and on about this, but that's what I've been doing for all of these years. And I think over time, what I was writing for me, what I was reimagining on my own behalf became what I then converted into the TED Talk and now what I've been putting into a book for many, many years. So that's a long answer that could have been far longer, but hopefully that helps. I love that answer. Loved it. Because then you dipped into uh, some of the women that you mm-hmm. write about in the book. And I want to get a, a, you know specific about their stories. But m- my first question about the women is you, you've listed three. You listed Eve, Hagar, and the midwives. And there's 10 of, of out of those three, there's 10. My question is, because there are so many feminine characters in the Bible, how were you able to choose what women you wanted to write about? <clears throat> I wish that I had some very sophisticated plan that I went with in order to make this decision. Um, my initial proposal for the book had me rewriting 52 of them. So that was a little unreasonable. Um <laughs> I don't know what was making me think that I would do 50, 52. Um, <clears throat> it would have been a much different book. Obviously, it would have been small reflections or something, you know. But what I, I knew I had to have Eve, of course, because that's what she's that that story for me is core to us being able to understand the way in which the tellings of these women's stories is in the DNA of all of us, whether we grew up hearing these stories or not, whether we like them or not, whether we believe them or not, in my opinion, it does not make any difference. They're, they're in us. They have sh- profoundly shaped the world that we live in, especially the Western world. So Eve's story to me is the, is the pinnacle that shows that the most clearly. So I knew I had to have her there. Uh, and then what I really wanted to do was um, use stories, some of which I thought women may have heard before and others that I was pretty sure they hadn't heard (laughs) because there are lots of stories in scripture that just don't get told because they're difficult. They're confusing. They are violent, some of them. Um, And so over the centuries, as these stories have been told, there are others that have been silenced because they're just too difficult to work with and they have too much tension in them. And we just don't, well, we men don't quite know what to do with them. So it was really a mixture of wanting to be able to bring forth and redeem some of the stories that I think have been told really painfully in the past that need to be heard and known in much more positive, powerful, passionate ways, and also to bring forth the voices and stories of women that have been silenced, that are unknown, that are really troublesome stories, so that we don't feel so alone in our own. 
that are troublesome and difficult. So it was relatively random and it obviously I gave it thought, but I could have written many more. Let's just say that. <laughs> chapter two, chapter two, you talk about Kane's wife mm-hmm. and I have to be honest, I've sat through many a Bible study. And I can't think of one moment where anyone has mentioned the fact that one, Cain has a wife, and number two, they build a community. Mm-hmm. He's just seen as this, this deviant murderer, and that's how we want to, that's how he's been painted traditionally. So even when one has been trained to catch all the things a writer is attempting to communicate in a narrative, which is me, I feel like I've been trained relatively well to do that. I did not catch that until I read Rewriting Eve. And so I feel like that the Bible is that one anthology where it's easy to accept what we've been told, regardless of how, how much you've been educated on it. Can you discuss how ignoring biblical women has been traditionally taught to us and told to us? Well, I don't think that we're taught to ignore biblical women. I think they are just ignored. <laughs> and so we we don't think to question it a lot. I mean, I you know, we hear stories of young girls who say how come there aren't female priests? How come, you know, like certainly we we question it, but there's always a very quick answer that is given that shuts down that curiosity for the most part. And I think it also the ignoring of women also explains why so many of us have left what we may have grown up learning. We've walked away from scripture, the church, faith, a belief in God. We've converted it into something different, perhaps. We now use different language to explain what our beliefs are. Uh, but that that isn't all that surprising to me, given the fact that for women in particular, it, it's a difficult pill to swallow if you're sitting in a sermon every single Sunday where you never see yourself represented, or when you do, it's through a lens of silence, shame, and sin. So... <clears throat> I think that, again, if I understand this, if I think about this only historically, only academically, only culturally, it's not that surprising that A, women have been left out of the text completely, or B, that they were passed over. I mean, this is a patriarchal culture where we honor the male sons, where, right, like that, that is the world in which scripture was written and formed and built. So I can't argue with the culture, with with the history in and of itself. What I can do, though, is say, look, even in a text that is excruciatingly patriarchal, it's painful how patriarchal it is, the stories of the women are still there, which to me is miraculous, especially when we look at some of these controversial ones right? They could have edited those out. And who knows how many they have edited out, like we, you know, obviously. But the fact that some of these even made it in, to me, is evidence of some form of divine intelligence. Like, (laughs) I just, you know, I don't know how to explain it other than that. So to go to Cain's wife specifically, we have lots of mention of women in genealogies, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so was the son of, like, we see women's names often show up in that context without any story. And Cain's wife is almost like that, right? There's this one sentence that says Cain took a wife and that's it. So when I see that, and of course my eyes are going looking, I'm looking for the stories of women, right? When I start working on the book or when I've been doing this writing, I'm like, where are they? Um, Then all I do at that point in time is start to imagine, well, okay, she's there. Now I get to assume a whole bunch of things. Why have we not heard about Eve's daughter-in-law? Like it's Eve's daughter-in-law. Like that kind of seems like a significant relationship. And if I assume even more, I think, well, wouldn't she have heard the stories that her husband would have heard growing up? 
what would that have sounded like to her? Wouldn't she have felt the tension between Adam and Eve? Wouldn't she like, and what does this tell us about her that she was given to be married to Cain? who's a marked man for murdering his brother. He's been cursed for life. This is who her parents thought was a good match for her. So we can learn all kinds of things about her that aren't in the text, but then make me curious about who this woman is. And the, the big point that I'm trying to make with Cain's wife is, look, 15 words in that huge text one sentence that gives us the awareness that she exists. And from her, we have all of the rest of the generations that follow, which I feel like, I mean, so many of us, and I mean, okay, I can think about this for myself, but let's think about this in a different way. Let's think about um, marginalized peoples, sexually trafficked women, uh, abused children and women. I mean, like the list goes on, like the amount of violence and harm and injustice that women experience, uh, women and children experience around the world is unfathomable. We don't hear those stories. But to know that Cain's wife is a story that is worth telling that can be imagined and redeemed into something powerful and personal and intimate that that helps me understand my story better also means that if if there are stories that feel invisible they deserve to be told as well they are just as integral just as important just as significant to what's shaping our world and my hope would be that it gives us hope when we feel like our stories don't matter or when we feel like the stories of women don't matter. I'm like, wait, but then there's Cain's wife. Like her story does matter if we tell it, if we've heard it, if we imagine it in a way that brings us that kind of encouragement and hope. And speaking of encouragement and hope, Hagar's chapter, Hagar's chapter knocked me back a bit. Because it never dawned on me that Hagar was given the same promise as Abraham. That's another thing that was that has been missing from the Bible studies that I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's again, this is the this is the misnomer, right? It's not missing from the Bible. It's missing from the what we've been told, how the stories have been told. Yes, Hagar receives exactly the same blessing as Abraham. Yes. Minor and- detail that we've left out. <laughs> A minor, but so significant. Yeah, so which huge. to me isn't even the most significant thing about Hagar's story. I, I'm pretty sure I write about this. There's a theological term called a theophany. And a theophany is when the divine appears in physical form, right? And so we have angels, we have Jesus would be considered a theophany in some contexts. Um, but when anytime the divine appears is a theophany. Okay, so we have lots of stories of these throughout scripture where God shows up in some physical form. But the very first time God ever appears in all of scripture is to Hagar, who's a woman, a slave, a runaway abused, marginalized, harmed. That's the very first time. Now, God's spoken previously in the text. We have God's voice, but physical appearance actually named, seen by another person is Hagar. Now, when I stumbled across this for myself, honestly, I like started researching. I'm like, somebody must know this. Someone must have talked about this. And I was able to find some feminist theologians that, in fact, had actually spoken of this. But I'd never heard it. And I'm now, you know, at this point, I was in my, what, early 40s. Like, how have I not ever heard this? Which, if I were like a conspiracy theorist, I would start to say it's a plot. Like, (laughs) this, like, we've never talked about the fact that the first time God ever shows up is to a woman a marginalized, harmed, abused woman, that seems really important because it would completely reshape 
our understanding of the divine, wouldn't it? If we'd been told that the divine chooses first to show up for women who are being harmed and are afraid and are lost and are alone and isolated, uh, wow, that's much different than the God of whom we've been told. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. It's huge. It's huge. It is. It is. And I think I read that she was the first to vocalize a name for God. Yes. Yes. One to say, okay, here's here's what I'm going to call you. And I can't imagine the other humans that began calling him by her name, the name that she yeah. She gave to him. Or Amazing. They. they. Yeah. 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 <sighs> I want to talk about Queen Vashti. Okay, for great. A moment. <clears throat> for me a moment. You, in, in, in chapter six on Queen Vashti, you quote musician Ani DeFranco. You said, you said, well, she said, For a girl, the fear of not being pretty is the fear of not being a valuable object, which is the fear of not being loved. And I wanted to ask, what made you think of that while you were writing on Queen Vashti? Yeah. The power of Vashti's story is, of course, that when she is asked to parade before the king and all of his drunken, all the men of the kingdom that have been drinking for weeks on end, um, she says no. And this sets off a chain of events where all of the the king can't believe it. And he calls all of his advisors and he says, what are we going to do? The queen said no to me. And the advisors say, well, we better do something because if all the women in the kingdom find out that she said no, they'll start doing the same thing. And so they banish her basically. And this is all we have of her story. That's, that's really it. Mm -hmm. It lasts longer than it took me to tell it, but that's the (laughs) gist of it. (laughs) The significance of her no just cannot be stated enough. And I think this is one of the gifts that we receive in reimagining her story is how powerful it is to recognize that our source of power does not have to be placed in how we are perceived and in our appearance, which is all that she was being honored for. That's all that the king wanted from her. And she's not willing to compromise her sense of self. She's not willing to stand before all of these men in order to ingratiate herself to the king. She and she loses everything because of that, but in fact gains everything. And so the Ani DeFranco quote, I think, you know, speaks to what all of us have known. This is the world that we've grown up in. We have learned that our value and worth are based in our appearance, in being pretty. And it's only if we're pretty that we'll be loved. Now, objectively, we know better than that. We know that isn't a true thing, but we don't have to look around ourselves very far or within to see that there are still aspects of us that believe that. And so when I look at the story of Vashti, one of the things I think about is If I had been told her story as an example of a woman who says no to objectification, no to her appearance being the prize, she she risks it all on behalf of self as opposed to what other people think of her. If I had been told that story that way when I was a young girl, and I think about what that would have looked like through my lifetime 
as a teenager, in my 20s, early in my marriage, all of the places in my life where I have compromised, where I've complied, where I've said yes instead of no, I I would be telling a different story today. My life would be completely different than it is today. And no harm, no foul. Like I'm not, you know, I don't have resentment for the life that I've lived. I've learned many things. And culturally, socially, when I look around me at the world, when I look at capitalism, when I look at the impact of misogyny, when I look out at the ways in which we are constantly being bombarded with the messaging that tells us that we aren't of value unless we are beautiful, that we must continue to pursue this, especially today. Like I'm 62 now and I, I, I like in my Instagram feed, I am constantly getting, I'm sure I'm going to get more because my phone's listening to me talk now. I'm constantly getting the ads, right? For all of the anti-aging, everything that exists. And I, I feel like this is why we need Vashti. I need to be able to say no to all of that. No, this is the wrong equation. This is the wrong story. I don't want to be living this story. But I didn't hear Vashti's story when I was growing up in that way. None of us did. And that's what I think Ani DeFranco is naming. She's not talking about Vashti, but she's naming this cultural epidemic of beauty as value. And um, Vashti says, yeah, I'm with Ani DeFranco. Let's not do that. Let's say no. And you also write that Queen Vashti's no meant Esther's yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And Esther's is the story that most of us would have known. You know, we heard, might have heard the precursor of Vashti before, but, you know, her story, wow. I mean, basically, Esther is sex trafficked because the king, now without his queen, is depressed and lonely. And so these oh so intelligent advisors of his say, well, we should find you a new queen. So they round up all the young girls in the kingdom and put them into some kind of treatment plan for a year to make them as beautiful as they can possibly be. And then the king gets to sleep with one every night until he decides who it is that he wants. And lucky Esther, she's you know ripped from her family and everything she's ever known and ends up being the one that he chooses. So none of this is a happy story. Uh, when I was young, and even when my girls were young, I saw tellings of this story where it's like a beauty pageant, almost like, yay, Esther's the one that got chosen. And I'm like, this is a violent, awful, tragic story of a young girl who is forced into this role as queen. Um I can't imagine she wanted to be in it. And we have evidence in the story that she didn't want the role. She didn't want the responsibility. She uncovers a plot that is of genocide for all of the Jewish people based on this advisor to the king. She ends up exposing the guy. Her uncle is the one who helps her through all of this. Um, Anyway, she ends up saving the Jewish people, basically because of her courage to expose this plot. Now, it's a great story. Like, it's an amazing, like, the plot line is amazing. Um, And none of it would have existed had Vashti not said no. So I think what you're referring to, one of the points that I make in in that transition there is that it's important, like, I think we're, we miss something lots if we don't acknowledge the shoulders upon which we stand, <laughs> the history of women and the choices that they made before they it ever got to me that enabled me to live the story that I've lived, right? So, I mean, generations and generations and generations of women, not just these biblical stories I'm telling. I mean, those are thousands of years old, but you know, women in our own history, our uh, not even our blood history, but let's even look at our blood history. Like there's just so many so many stories of women who have made choices that have enabled us to then step into the ones that are ours. And I think we owe them our honoring for sure. And I think that their desire is that we step up, that we, that we then make the choices that need to be made, that we raise our voices, that we honor them by, by, 
making the choices that they've enabled for us in bold and powerful ways. And that's very hard to do when we feel alone, when we feel like we're trying to figure all of this out by ourselves, which is a lot of what Esther must have felt. And so I can look at her story as an example and I can think, okay, what is it like to be in a place where I'm afraid that the choice that I need to make is going to cause all kinds of hell to break loose? And right? Like, again, this is a theme, like in so many of these stories, women are making choices that are, is going to cause all hell to break loose. Um, and thankfully in the stories, they do make those choices and we just need to honor them so that we feel like we can do the same so that we know that we're companioned and surrounded and accompanied and mentored by amazing women. We're not alone ever in this process. I take a breath because I just, I just love the book so much. And I don't like to play favorites with one of the 10 women that you, that you write about in the book. But I have to say your chapter on the woman at the well, that, that sticks with me. I've, I actually read that chapter several times and, um, it, it reminded me of, it took me back to Eve instantly. When Eve is first confronted in, in Genesis 2, her disposition is, is one without shame. She doesn't know to be, to, to have that, that feeling. But then we get to the Samaritan woman. And it just seems that that's a woman's natural disposition during that time period. Shame is just natural. Can we talk about the internalization of shame and why her story, The Woman at the Well, was important to add to your narrative? Yeah. I've not actually thought about what you just said. That's really interesting to me that even by the time that woman's story is told, women have internalized shame Mm -hmm. compared to what we see in Genesis. Mm -hmm. I'll have to think some more about that. Thank you. That's really significant. And very true. Um, so when I was talking about being in seminary and I wrote this academic paper, um, the woman at the well was the story that I worked with. Um, so it made sense to me to use that in the book because I'd all, she was where I started. And, um, thank you very much. The, the, the power of her story. I mean, if, if you grew up hearing that story the way I did, what you heard was that Jesus comes to the well in the middle of the day and uh, there's a woman there and he asks her if she can pour, get him a drink of water. And she says, why are you speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? And he says, if you knew of whom was asking you this question, you would ask for more than just a cup of water. Like it becomes this kind of theological banter back and forth. Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he said, well, that's right, because you've already had six of them or five of them. And the one that you live with now isn't your husband. Anyway, okay, this goes on and on. The way we've been told this story is that she's evasive. We've been told that as Jesus asks her this question, she keeps darting around and changing the subject and evading what it is that he's trying to get at, that she's not forthright, that she's not being honest. We're also told that the reason that she's at the well in the middle of the day is because she's ashamed of her life and isn't there early in the morning, which is when the women would have come to draw the water. This could be true, but we don't know. All we know is it's the middle of the day and she happens to be there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but the the assumption in the way that the story has been told is that this is a woman who's very familiar with shame, which I wouldn't argue with given that she's had so many marriages already. And right, like if we look at just the bibliographic sort of data in her story, then we're like, okay, I can see that maybe that's would be something that would be true about her. Maybe she doesn't want to hang out with all the other women. Maybe that's why she's there in the middle of the day. But here's what I think we miss in that story. This is similar to Hagar and the first theophany. In all of the New Testament, all four of the gospels, all of these accounts of Jesus' life, 
this is the longest and most intelligent conversation he has ever, ever. Most of the time, what we see of Jesus are parables where he's telling a story so that people can understand what he means through story. Because if he were to just say these deeply theological things that he's trying to part, you know, help people understand, they wouldn't get it. So he tells these things through a story. We also have conversations that he has with his disciples, which are basically him saying, why don't you get this yet? How hard could this possibly be? How many times do I need to tell you? Okay. But this story is him bantering back and forth with a woman who knows the answers to his questions, who understands history and theology enough to keep up with what it is that he's talking about. Who uh, The way I picture this conversation is that he must have been thrilled to be talking to her that his eyes must have sparkled, that he must have laughed as they talked. And what would her experience have been? A woman at that time, women did not speak. Women were not involved in any theological training whatsoever. They did not get learn. They would, she would have only picked this stuff up by hearing it discussed in other places. So the fact that he's asking her questions, that would have been so empowering for her. She would have felt safe for one of the first times to actually be able to say what she thought instead of what people expected her to say or not say more applicably because people would have expected her just to be quiet. I think I I just love that conversation. And for me, when I look at it that way, the shame slips away. This is not about Jesus trying to get her to admit that she's sinful so that he can forgive her. This is a story and a conversation in which two people engage brilliantly, sparks fly, topics bounce from one thing to another, which is what happens in the best of conversations. We start one place and two hours and a bottle of wine later, we're off somewhere else that we never thought we'd be like... That's what you love about the best conversations with people. And that's what we see there. Now, if I take the story further, you know, the disciples come back. They're surprised to see Jesus talking to this woman. She runs back to town. She says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done or everything, you know, who's seen me, who knows me, who who gets me. She becomes an evangelist. She, the whole town comes out. So If she was a woman who was cowering in shame, the fact that she is seen and heard and welcomed and allowed changes her, enables her to go back with a voice and with power and authority and create change. The only reason people come to see him is because she said so. Well, let's talk about that. Not the five husbands, not the coming to the well in the middle of the day because she feels so much shame. Like, And there's no mention of shame in the text at all. It's not there. It's There's no mention of shame. So we're the ones, as the story has been told over the generations, that have assumed that, who have applied that to her, who have made up another story. See, and people get a little frustrated with me that I'm making up these stories. I'm like, we've been making shit up all along. Like, all of this is made up. So I can, if I want, because that's all we've ever been doing. Okay. Join the crowd. Um, So we're the ones who have applied the shame. So to what you said earlier about the fact that the shame is internalized in this woman, well, we're the ones who've internalized it. Not we, but over generations, right? Like as these stories have been told, that understanding of women in particular, go, but we go right back to Eve, right? Because Eve was independent, because Eve made her own choice. Look at what happened. So we see another story of an independent woman and we're like, oh, no, no. Clearly, we need to apply silence, shame, right from the get-go. I just don't like that. So I take it away. (laughs) Absolutely. This is why I love these 
the ex- I call them expounding on these stories. I don't even call them, you know, we, you know, we, I think they're, we're adding to stories that we didn't know about. We're adding the nuance and backstory to things that we didn't know. And even, even just you explaining that, it gave me a, a new profound image of her. Because you're right. I was taught to, that she internalized shame. The story mm-hmm. does not mm-hmm. mention mm-hmm. that she was ashamed of her life in any way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, we look at that story, the way that story is often told is, aren't we grateful that Jesus was intuitive enough and wise enough and patient enough to be able to see through her ruse and offer her what she most needed? No. I mean, okay. But I think she offered him what he most needed. And in turn, what she received, I mean, how powerful for a woman to actually be in conversation with a man, to be seen, to be heard, to be allowed to speak. I mean, all of us have had those, hopefully, have had experiences where we've actually really felt heard really felt seen. And those are pivotal moments for us as women. We go, at least in my experience, I go back to those moments in my mind again and again, and I go, oh yeah, yeah, wait. I remember what that felt like. That's not what this is. Okay. Not going to stay here. This job isn't a fit. Can't stay in this relationship. I'm not being seen and heard. Like I know what that is. I know those moments. They're too far and too, too far and few between. But when we have them, it radically revolutionizes our lives. And that's what she received there. It's not about forgiveness. It's about being seen and heard. And in some ways, that would be eternal life, right? Like this idea, right? Again, all that eternal life, all that stuff that we understand, that we think about now, was all applied later. Like nobody was talking about eternal life. Jesus is talking about living water. Like, yeah, he gave her a big drink and she gave him one back. Awesome. Cheers. <laughs> Rana, is there a story you wanted to discuss but mm. couldn't or didn't? Is there oh, a woman you didn't that, you, the book? that you wanted well, to write about and you're just like, uh, I can't, I can't get, I can't get her in here, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. You know, there, um, <clears throat> and I, I have, I, I may still, who can say, maybe there'll be, there's another book in me. We, we will see. I think, you know, there are a number of stories that I have debated about telling because they are so excruciatingly violent toward women. Um, the story of the concubine comes to mind, which is a horrific story of a woman who she is owned by a man and he's traveling and the place that they spend the night, all the men of the village come pounding on the door because they want to have sex with the man and the host says no, but it, here's this woman. So they throw the woman out to her. She's basically gang raped all night long. She makes her way back to the doorstep of the owner of the man who owns her. He comes out in the morning. She has died. He cuts her body into 12 parts and sends one to each of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel as a warning and a, you know, okay. It's horrific. It's awful. It's awful. It's one, it's one of the most violent stories, which is why we don't hear it. I mean, it's horrible. We, what, what, what to do with this? So that's an example of a story that I I have written about it on my own in other contexts, but I, I wrestle with it because on the one hand, I, there is no part of me that wants to glorify, perpetuate, or justify the violence of women, violence against women. On the other hand, the place where I feel the tension is if I don't tell that story, if we don't tell that story for as as harmful as it is, she's silenced yet again. We're perpetuating her harm in not naming it. And 
so there's a whole canon in and of itself within scripture of those kinds of stories, rapes of women, killings of women, um, that I, I don't want to write a book on those in particular, but I think to answer your question, like, like, I think one of the things I've really wrestled with with the book over the years is, especially since I've left the church, this is not, I don't practice religion. Like it, I, I love the stories for the sake of the stories and for the women. It's not the doctrine and the theology and the dogma within. But I often encounter women who have, like me, left the church and have kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, I don't like these stories. They are violent against women. They do shame women. They do silence women. This is why I've walked away from the whole thing. This is why I don't read the Bible. This is why I don't want to have any part of it. And I 100% understand that. At the same time, there's a part of me that feels like, but there's still women in there who deserve to be heard, who deserve to be honored and so I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because there are these awful stories and really bad tellings. And that's what I hope the book has done is invite us back to not the dogma and the theology, but to the women and to the beauty to be found in the stories. And so I think <clears throat> when I was making the choices, those were the kinds of stories that those really difficult ones that feel really important, um, but that at least weren't in this particular book. But thank you for asking. Like they, they deserve to be told. They're just hard ones to tell. Yeah. Rana, thank you so much for bringing Rewriting Eve to us. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for being here with me today. Everyone needs to go pick it up, whether you are whether you read the Bible religiously, whether you kind of dip in, in it in and out of it, whether you're religious, whether you're church going, whether you're not church going, rewriting Eve is a, a group has a group of stories that you need to read and that you need to hear. Hmm. It is, will be available three wait, October 3rd next week. Six days. Yeah, Six next days. Week. Yes. Thank you so much, Rana. Thank you, LaToya. I appreciate it so much.